welcome you to our service here this morning. We're glad for your presence, especially those of you that are visitors. We're glad to have you here, too, this morning, and and uh, we hope that you can enjoy your time here and worshiping with us. Turn with me to the book of James again this morning. <clears throat> this time we're going to go to chapter 5, and you're going to say, well, why, do you, why are you going to chapter 5? There's two or three chapters in between where we were last time we spoke out of this book. And now we're going to chapter 5. I would like to address a subject that I have a a text for here in in James 5. And so that's why we're going there. A few weeks ago, um, I was in a conversation with um, about the subject of what... What do we do with the, with the verses in the Bible? And there's, there's more than one. In fact, I found eight as I was looking through the New Testament where it seems like there is a, um, a very, what would you say? A sweeping, no strings attached promise that God hears our prayers and he will answer our prayers. So what do you do with it? Whenever um, you ask for a thing, and it feels like you don't get an answer. And I was interested that the, the song that Brother Allen led here right before the, um, uh, uh, here, the last one he led, the, the last line of the third verse said, Teach me the patience of an, un, of an unanswered prayer. And I thought that was very fitting for what I'd like to uh, speak about this morning. You know, we have... Um, we have books on prayer. We speak about prayer. We practice prayer. Uh, on any given Sunday morning, we probably have collective prayer, you know, three times or so. Um, we pray regularly, personally. Uh, we have prayer meetings. We assure others that we're praying for them. And um, we ask for prayer. You know, prayer isn't a foreign thing to us. And I'm sure each of us could could mention times where we feel like we have been, we have had an answer given to us that we have prayed for. But what am I supposed to do whenever it feels like I've prayed for something and I haven't gotten an answer? What are we supposed to do with that? And that's what I would like to to uh, to look at this morning. Let's read, um, let's see, let's read James 5, let's start at verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And I'm going to stop reading there. So the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the title that I've given this message. And I would just like to pick out a few things here in this scripture we just read 
uh, before we go and look at a few other uh, scriptures that are factual and um, we know are right. Um, we can factually say from this passage that if we're sick, it's okay to pray about it. You should pray about it. And as a matter of fact, that we have a whole ordinance that is um, that is uh, centered around this passage of scripture. And that uh, ordinance of anointing with oil and praying for the sick is something that we practice, and I think we do well to do so. And um, uh, I've, I had a message on that a few years ago, and I won't expound on that any further. But this is very plain, plain English. If we're sick, it's right to pray about it. There's another thing that rises to the top here, and that is the, the whole idea that in this process, um, if there's sin, that has to be dealt with before we pray. In other words, we can't have that. That, that can be a hindrance to our prayers. I think that comes uh, very quickly to the top here. And then he go- gives this long um, couple of verses here. I shouldn't say long, but a few verses here about Elijah. And he makes the point that Elijah... Even though we think of him as quite a mighty prophet, and he was, he said, uh, really, Elijah wasn't a whole lot different than you and I. He was a man that when he stubbed his toe, it hurt just like when you and I stub our toes. He was a man that got um, depressed. He went and hid in a cave and said, I wouldn't mind if you take my life, God. This was the kind of man Elijah was. But James points out that he was also a man that he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. And then he prayed again that it would rain, and it did. Now, I took the time to go back into 1 Kings and just read over that particular um, series of events. And the thing that I found fascinating is we do not have it recorded. I'm going to take James' word for it that that he did so, but we do not have it recorded. That Elijah necessarily prayed that it wouldn't rain. We have, what we have recorded is that he announced to Ahab that it wouldn't rain. We just have that announcement. And then the other interesting part is, if you go into the next chapter, it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tish, the Tishbite and said, you go tell Ahab that it's going to rain now. Okay, so, so God spoke to, to Elijah and said, it's going to rain. So Elijah went and told Ahab, Ahab this, and, and then right after that we have the whole Carmel experience. And if you remember, after the 400 prophets of Baal were, were, um, um, uh, taken out by Elijah there, it said that he, that's when he began to pray. And uh, he sent a servant, he said, go look out over the sea there and see what you see. And the guy comes back and says, I don't really see anything. And it said that he prayed more. And he did this seven times, and it feels like that Elijah's just praying his heart out, and he keeps sending his servant and says, what do you see? And finally, after seven times of repeating this, um, the servant comes back and says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Did you ever think about how small that would have been? Uh, I generally think when I read that passage even, I think of maybe a cloud the size of that basketball hoop or something. But the size of a man's hand, that's barely visible. But it was all, it's, it's all Elijah needed. He said, it's going to rain and you go tell Ahab to get home as fast as he can because it's going to pour rain and it did. Now, the, the, the interesting part of all that is that God had told Elijah, it's going to rain. And it wasn't until after his whole Carmel experience that he begins to pray for rain. 
Now, do you make sense of that? He already knew it was going to rain. God had said it was going to rain. And yet he prayed earnestly for rain. I don't really have an answer for that, uh, except that perhaps Elijah felt that after this, this crisis moment there on Carmel, that perhaps it was, it was, it was crucial that the rain came and the rain came now. This would be kind of the, the, um, the cap of the whole event, the crowning point. I don't, I don't understand all that, but I just point out, point all this out to say that, um, it feels like Elijah and the Lord were working very much together in this thing. And it wasn't like one thing had to precede another, but it was like the whole thing was one story. And, and they were working very much as a unit in this whole thing. If you have any more, um, that if you have any insight on that, I'd be, I'd be interested to, uh, to hear what your thoughts are on that. But that's the way the story lays itself out in 1 Kings. One thing I will just point out here in this chapter, or in this, in this passage yet, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now it does not say that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man will be answered exactly the way the righteous man wants it to be answered. It just says it will avail much. Keep that in mind. All right, now we're going to look at some other scriptures here in the New Testament that uh, speak to this thing of, uh, of prayer, and see if we can um, see if we can learn anything from this. Let's turn to Matthew seven, if you would. I'll probably turn to a few more scriptures than than I generally would, but uh, I just want us to look at these passages and see if there's anything in the context that would help us to understand it a little better. Matthew 7 and um, verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I meant to stop there. So we'll just stop right there. So uh, basically what um, what Jesus is saying here is that, um, again, very very plain English. I don't know that I can say a whole lot more than what's said here. But he's basically given the commandment that you and I as Christians should ask and seek and knock. And uh, we would we could sum that up as, as praying to um, to God. And he says, the person that asks receives, the person that seeks finds, and the person that knocks has it opened unto you. And then he gives us a little illustration. He said, if you have a son that asks for bread, he says, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but this is what what came to me as, as I was reading over this. In verse 11, when it talks about giving good gifts to your children and your father will give good things to them that ask of him. Now, if, you're, if your son came, came and asked you for bread, but you didn't have bread around, or you thought bread was not what your son needed at that point, the point I think Jesus is making here is, 
You may give them bread, but you might give them a cracker. Or you might give them, um, I don't know, you might give them uh, some string cheese. But it's a good thing, all right? You're not going to give them a serpent. You're not going to give them something that's not good for him. You're going to give them something good, all right? And I think the point that Jesus is making here is that we as fathers and mothers know how to give good things to our children, and your heavenly Father knows how to give good things to you as well, and he doesn't mind at all if you ask for him, and he wants to do that for you. It's just that you might ask for bread. He's not going to give you the stone, but he might give you something else, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I'm not sure if that's reading too much into that or not, but that's that's kind of the way I would I would take that. God is delighted when we ask him for things, and he wants to give us good things. Let's turn to Matthew 17. And I'm going to read uh, verses 14 to 21. And when they were come to the multitude, there was there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If you have faith as the grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now let's turn to Matthew 21. There's a very similar um, passage here. Uh, Matthew 21 and verse 21. Uh, let's, let's go back to verse 18 and start there. Now in the morning, as he was returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith, and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Now I have to admit, of all the of all the passages in the New Testament, these two probably confound me the most. Um, it does seem to be a sweeping promise of big things, and perhaps we struggle what to do with that. Um, I, I, I have a couple of um, a couple of thoughts here. I'm not aware of any time. Um, since Jesus walked the face of this, earth, of this earth, that one of his followers said to a mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and it happened. So I think it's, it's safe to um, assume that Jesus was making a point here other than the fact that we should be able to pray a mountain to be moved into the sea. 
I think he was speaking a bit in hyperbolic language, something like he did whenever he said, uh, you know, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. I don't know that we ever really, we would take that very seriously, that we would literally take a knife and cut our hands off. I think the point that Jesus is making in these two um, instances is that the power of God knows no limits. And if if we have good reason, and I'm not sure what that reason would be, but if there would be good reason that we would feel like it would be to the glory of God, it would help the kingdom of God, if a mountain would be moved from there and, in, and go into the sea, that God could do that if he wished to do so. He could. His power is not limited. There's a, there's a word here in, um, in verse 22 of uh, chapter 21 that we just read here. And it says, In all things whatsoever ye ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. I looked up that word believing in the Greek, and it holds the idea of entrusting with. So everything we ask in prayer, we entrust it to God that we shall receive. And I'm wondering if, um, if, if the, if the lesson we should take from this is that I can commit the request that I have to God. I can leave it with Him and I can trust Him to give me the best that He has for me. I, I've entrusted to Him. I have asked believing. Again, I would, uh, I would uh, welcome your input on this, but that's the conclusions I came to. Um, I may have a, a few more thoughts on that a, a little later, but let, let's suffice it to say that God is not limited in what he can do, and we certainly can come to him and entrust our request to him. And he gives us the promise that we shall receive. We will receive something from him. All right, let's go to John 14 now and uh, read a few verses here. So John 14 and verse 12. I'm in Luke, that's why I'm having a problem here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I shall do, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever he shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Again, um, I, I, I am led to, to believe that the, the phrase that the Father may be glorified is a, is a key to understanding this particular passage. We can ask things, I think, sometimes that may not be the Father in his wisdom. God in his wisdom knows that it would not be the way that he would be glorified the most, okay? And I think we need to keep in mind that um, when we ask, and we, we ask in Jesus' name, and we ask that in, in a way that we wish that God would be glorified, I think we need to accept the answers that God gives to us as being what would glorify him the most. 
If you jump over to chapter 15 and verse 7, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And again, I'm, I'm noticing that there's this thing of abiding in, in, in the Lord. Obedience comes into, uh, into focus here. And the fruit bearing, being a disciple, and glorifying God. And when you have that, all, all that package together, and we, we are living in that state, and we ask, ask God our petitions, um, again, we have to be satisfied that God will give us what glorifies him the most. All right, let's turn to the last two here yet in 1 John. Let's go to 1 John. Let's go to 1 John 3 and verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son of God and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know he abideth in us by the Spirit which he has given us. And now turn to chapter 5 and verse 14. <clears throat> and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the, pet- the petitions we desired of him. So as we uh, sum up this, um, these two passages that we just read here in 1 John, again, there's some, some things that come to, uh, that, that rise to the top here again. That is the whole thing of keeping Jesus' commandments, doing the things that please him. And then in this last verse that we just read here in verse 14, again, we have the idea of asking according to God's will. And it says that we know that God hears us. We know that. And the answer is what we desire because we desire what God desires. Okay. So we have um, a total of eight passages here that we just got done reading that God expects us to pray to him. And I don't think God is... um, um, unhappy with us if we ask things that we desire. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. If we desire a thing, we should come to our Heavenly Father and we should ask for that thing. But I should, I think in, in the, in the grand scheme of things, as we, as we look at all these passages put together, I think we should expect to receive an answer from God. But it may not be exactly what I would have anticipated or my exact wish. Um, I think effectual prayer does have some qualifiers, and I would like to just uh, give us four qualifiers that uh, we need to think about as we think about praying. In James 5.16, and we just, we just read through that, we won't read it again, and I mentioned it before, 
But I think that uh, perhaps sometimes the the thing that's the biggest hindrance to the answers to our prayers, or could, can be, is the fact that we are not as diligent in keeping our relationship to, with God as current as we should. In Isaiah's day, he had some pretty sharp words for the children of Israel. He said in Isaiah 59.2, he said, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. The psalmist says something very similar. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In John 9, we have the testimony of the man that was born blind. And um, and you remember that, that interchange between the Pharisees and the, the blind man. And the blind man just made a very um, obvious statement. They were, they were pressing him. Well, you know, who is Jesus? Who do you think this person is? And uh, why do you think that he healed you? Don't, don't you realize that Jesus is of the devil? I'm putting, putting it in my words. But the blind man, he was stunned. He goes, he, and this is his words in, in John 9, 31. He says, now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, he heareth him. The blind man like, this don't make any sense because we know that God doesn't listen to sinners and you're calling this man a sinner. All right. And then there's the, uh, the the verse in in Matthew that talks about when when we come to worship God, and we remember that there's something between me and God, or I'm sorry, me and and uh, and my brother. Uh, the instruction is that we should leave the gift at the altar and we should go and make things right with our brother, and then we should come back and worship God. Um, basically, insinuating that it's extremely important that I have peace with you all uh, if I'm going to. To pray to God. So, I think we understand that, but I'm just saying that, that, uh, you know, I think it's something we need to think about. Is my relationship with God current? That's something we need to think about whenever we come to God in prayer. The other, another qualifier is that I think we can be guilty sometimes of asking selfishly or with self-centered motives. And I think we can even perhaps do this unknowingly sometimes. If you go to, to chapter 4 of James 3, he has something to say about this. He talks about asking and not receiving because we ask amiss that we may consume it upon our lusts. And that's probably a topic all by itself there. But that word amiss, if you would look in the... Um, in the Greek, it means to ask wrongly, and many times it is it is translated in the rest of the New Testament as sick. All right, so if you if you put that connotation in there, because we ask wrongly or we ask in a sickly way. All right, I think um, I think we have to be aware of the possibility that we at times could ask for a thing with a selfish motive. And I don't even think this is um, easy for us to completely sort out all the time. And I don't know that we should spend a lot of time um, maybe sorting it out. There's some things that are going to be very obvious. I mean, you know, should I, you know, the, the whole thing of consuming it upon our lusts, you know, should I pray to God that he'd give me, um, I don't know, a Lamborghini or something? You know, I'm just using something outlandish, you know. It, why would you want a Lamborghini? What, what would that do that a Civic wouldn't, you know? So you get it. But I think there's times that that God knows our hearts better than us, 
And he, he perhaps knows our motives better than we do. And he can say, you know, if we're willing to allow him to search our hearts and understand who we are and allow him to give us what's best for us rather than what we sometimes want and accept that, uh, I think we'll be miles ahead. Another thing that is a qualifier, and and this one is is one that I I say carefully and I do not say in any accusing way because I'm not sure I completely understand this. But in two of the passages we read, it seems that Jesus at least implied that there could be a possibility that some of our prayers are hindered because of a lack of faith. And I say that very carefully, and I do not say that in any kind of an accusing way, because I think it's very possible to whoop up a false fantasy faith, and that'll do nothing for us, for sure. And I'm not sure that um, what faith the grain of a mustard seed looks like either, but it doesn't seem to me that that would be very much faith. And uh, Jesus said, if you have that much faith, you know, you can do mighty things, you know. So what does it mean to say that, how do I know when I have enough faith? You know, what, what does that mean exactly? And and I wish I could give you a good answer to that. But I was interested as I read that account again in Mark 9 of the father that had the deaf and dumb child. And he brought him to Jesus to uh, be healed. And Jesus asked him the question, he said, do you have enough faith? You think you think that can happen? And And the father said, Lord... I believe, help thou my unbelief. He said, in, in that, in that segment of my life, that, that gap between what I believe you can do and what you see in me, Lord, can you help me out in that? Can you just help me out in my unbelief, in my lack of faith? I, I don't know what to do with that, and I'm not going to, um, to, to belabor that uh, very long, because I, I believe that we can unduly punish ourselves by thinking that, you know, the reason my prayers aren't answered is because I just didn't have enough faith. And I, I don't know that that is a, a very wise thing to do. You know, in the New Testament, First Thessalonians, we're, we're told to pray without ceasing. Colossians, to continue in prayer. Uh, Romans to continue instant in prayer. Um, Luke 18 talks about the, Jesus gives the parable of the unjust judge that listened to the widow because of her persistence. She kept coming to him, and G- Jesus clearly teaches there that God, too, will listen to us if um, if we are persistent in prayer. And so those things all have to come in into, into focus here. You know, it's a little like if, um, you know, one of my children would come to me and, and he wants a, I don't know, whatever it is, a bicycle or something. And, and, uh, you know, he says, Hey, I want a bicycle. Oh, you know, you got a bike, whatever. But if, if after a month, if he would constantly ask me every day, you know, I'd really like a bicycle, you know, maybe I would, um, maybe I'd pay a little bit more attention to that and I would say, well, you know, why do you need the bicycle? What's, what's the thought there and everything? We may, we maybe have this conversation and, and perhaps, um, Perhaps I would end up getting him a bicycle. I'm not sure if that's exactly a, a a right way to think about prayer or not, but there does seem to be something in the scripture that um, that puts a premium on continuance in prayer. And I would, and I'll just leave it at that.
The last qualifier I would like to just mention is that we must always have a spirit that is yielded to God's will. In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, uh, that one verse that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What's God's will in heaven? If you read, a, if you read about the, uh, the heavenly scenes in uh, Revelation, uh, different passages in Revelation, always the, the, the entirety of what's happening, what's taking place, is all about glorifying God. Whatever exalts God is what is happening. And can, can I be submitted in my life that whatever glorifies God, I'm good with that? Um, I want God's will to happen in my life just like it is in heaven. And whatever it takes for God to make that happen in my life, I'm good with that. I would just like to call our attention quickly to two examples of prayer that met all of the these qualifiers that I just mentioned and yet were not ans- answered. And you probably know what they are. In Matthew 26, we have the... Um, the um, passage of Jesus in the garden there, crying out to his father that he wouldn't have to go through this this uh, ordeal of crucifixion, and he wanted not to do that so badly. And who would not say that Jesus, um, he was a sinless person, so we know that wasn't a problem. You know, he, 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 was, he was this person that knew how to pray to God. Did God hear um, Jesus' prayer there in that garden? I believe he did. In Luke 22, it says there appeared an angel from heaven to minister to him and strengthen him. That was God's answer. God did not remove the ordeal, but he sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And then, just a few verses later, when Peter cuts off the ear of that high priest servant, um, Jesus said, put your sword away, Peter. He said, don't you realize that I could I could pray right now and, the, and God would send thousands of angels, and make this whole thing go away. Well, why didn't he do it then? I think the reason he didn't do it is because he had melded his will with the Father's will. And he had gotten strength in that garden, in that time of prayer, that he he did not have before he went to that garden. But that, that time of intense prayer had led him to a point where he did not want to call the angels anymore to deliver him. But rather, he was he was okay with going through it. He had the power to face these awful circumstances and be calm. Did he have a reward for this? I would uh, suggest he did. If you read in Philippians 2, it says this, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and listen to the last phrase, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus was exalted in a way that he could not have been had he not gone through that, and ultimately God was glorified. The second the second. Um, Example I would point you to is in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul said that three times he had asked for healing for an infirmity in the flesh, and he had not received his request for healing, but rather he had received a promise for grace. 
And he tells the Corinthian church there that he gladly embraced that lot because he realized it was only in accepting his lot in life that he would glorify God in the way that he wished that he could. And he said, I will glory in my infirmities that the power of God may rest upon me. That was his words. I think uh, that particular instance is an inspirational example of another man who met all the qualifiers for an answered prayer, and yet he has submitted himself to the will of God. And the answer he received was strength to go through the, the cross that he was called to bear rather than a removal of the cross. Okay, so I would like to just summarize um, a few things here in closing that uh, maybe kind of bring all these loose ends together. So as we've looked at all these passages and we have looked at some examples of of people that indeed did ask uh, and didn't exactly receive what they they would have wished for initially, what are some lessons we can learn here? Number one, I think that we as people need to resist the urge to take the Bible and proof-text it. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is a very balanced book. And we need to be willing to realize there's more in the Bible than just those eight passages that we read about prayer. I think we need to read context. And I think that we, read, we need to read the broader text of the New Testament as we, uh, as we uh, find our way through this. I'll read you a couple of verses that might give some balance to this. In John 16, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that ye may have peace. And now he says, In the world you will have tribulation, or you could say trouble. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. So he, he basically gives them a promise of trouble. Now, that's quite a promise, but that's what he promises them. In Romans 8.28, very, very familiar verse, and we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be a firstborn among many brethren. Does that describe me? Do I know that all things work together for good, and that I can rest, that whatever comes my way, God has a bigger a bigger uh, plan in mind, and that uh, this is ultimately for my good. The Bible is clear that when we submit and yield our lives to God, we are allowing him to lead us in ways that bring the most glory to his name. Not lives that are necessarily free of pain, but a life that is carefully guided by our Father. Another thing I'd like to just point out, These passages that we read this morning urge us to pray for what we want and then to rest in the fact that God may answer us by what we need or what is best in glorifying him. We often refer to Jeremiah 33.3 as God's telephone number. And I want to read, read you that verse here this morning. Call upon me and I will answer thee. How will he answer Here's how I will answer. I will show you great and mighty things which you knew not. All right? Think about that. Call upon me and I will give you exactly what you asked for? No. I'll show you great and mighty mighty things that you never thought about before. 
Number three, while God could, he sometimes doesn't choose to give his people a path that is free from difficulty, that come through the virtue of simply being a human in a fallen world. And that's that's a hard one for us sometimes. You know, sometimes we get uh, a feeling that, you know, God, I've, I've served you. I've done all these things, you know, I... You know, why do I have this path to travel that, that you have given me? But you know, it is, it is the, it is the inevitability of, of life that difficulties go with it. People that are Christians get sick and die. Uh, people that are Christians have terrible tragedies. Um, uh, just recently, uh, the, uh, the tragedy there in Nickel Mine School was brought to my mind, um, 16, 17 years ago now. But that terrible tragedy that day reverberated the grace of God, what, what the grace of God can do in the hearts of people around the entire world. People stood stunned that Christians could forgive murder, a murderer. There, there was nothing that was, um, few things that would have been more, spoke more loudly to the grace of God in a person's life. God guarantees a superhuman ability to respond to, tra- to tragedy, but not necessarily a superhuman escape from adversity, even though both can be a powerful testimony. I would just give you this as another biblical example. That night that Peter was delivered from prison, and um, we are led to believe that his miraculous deliverance was because of a group of praying Christians in, the, in that house that night. Just the beginning of that chapter, it had said that James had been beheaded by Herod. Now, would it be, would it be too presumptuous for me to presume that the same people that had gathered in the house and prayed for Peter may not have also gathered in the house and prayed for James? And Peter, he, he had an angel come and deliver him and James got his head cut off. Now we don't, we don't have mention that, that any, that we had a prayer meeting for James, but I guess I'm just, I guess I, I think it would be safe to assume that they did. I just give that illustration to say that we have to rest in the fact that God does choose our path, and sometimes it just looks a little different from one person to the next. Fourthly, let's resist the temptation to think that God owes us because we are Christians. God does not owe us anything, and... Um, I think to entertain this thought is is not a is it is not proper. Romans twelve one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Fifthly, let's never succumb to the thinking that all unpleasant things in our lives are connected to punishment. On your own time, I would encourage you to read Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 12. It talks about the chastening of the Lord there. And in our minds, we think of chastening as as punishment. That's the way it, it, it resonates with us. But if you read that, that passage carefully, it talks about how, how Jesus endured the cross, and he did all these things, and he was highly exalted because of that. And that, likewise, we as people can expect that there's going to be times in our lives when things are kind of rough, kind of rocky. 
And um, we don't necessarily have to look at that as it's because I did something wrong. It's just that God loves us. And it says in that passage that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And lastly, let's be satisfied that we can know the that we can't know the big picture or understand God's will that he wishes to accomplish in our lives. But also, can we rest in the fact that we do have a kind and loving father? And that thought is brought out so beautifully in uh, Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's that's God speaking there. You don't understand what I'm trying to do. And uh, I think the same thing can be said of our own children, if you want to think of that. You know, sometimes we, we um, you know, situations that come up as, as parents and children relate that the child wants one thing, and yet we know for his good he needs another. And... Um, and, and we can get that because we, we understand that. Can we, can we equally get the fact that God sees things from a different perspective than what we do? Well, as we conclude this, I, uh, I hope this exercise has been, um, helpful this morning. I feel like in some ways, um, I don't, I don't know that I have a lot of answers this morning. But yet as we look at it, I think we need to understand that there's so much more happening in uh, in the world and in our lives than what we can understand. And sometimes we just have to rest in the fact that God has our good in mind and um, and indeed he does hear our prayers.